This episode of Long Reads is brought to you in association with Pluto Press. Pluto have developed a new list of audiobooks for some of their most popular titles. The Brutish Museums by Dan Hicks is one audiobook you can buy from Pluto. The New York Times described it as one of the best art books of the year, and it spurred a number of museums to return stolen artefacts. If you buy at least one audiobook from PlutoBooks.com before the end of December, you'll be entered for a draw to win one of three sets of the entire list. Hello, you're very welcome to Long Reads, a Jacobin podcast where we look in depth at political topics and thinkers. My name's Daniel Finn. I'm the features editor here at Jacobin, and I'll be presenting the show. Eritrea's long struggle for independence finally ended in victory three decades ago. It seemed like a fresh beginning for one of Africa's smallest countries. But the Eritrean leader, Isaiah Safwerki, soon established a highly repressive political system that caused many young people to flee. Since 2020, Afwerki's army has been a key protagonist in one of the world's most destructive wars. Our guest today is Michaela Rong. She's a journalist and the author of several books about African politics, including A History of Modern Eritrea, I Didn't Do It For You. She's also written a novel called Borderlines, inspired by events in Eritrea. How did Eritrea become an Italian colony and what were the main legacies of Italian colonial rule? The story of Italian colonialism in Eritrea sort of um, takes two, it's in two parts really. When the Suez Canal was opened, there was a flurry of interest by European powers in the Red Sea because they thought this would open up uh, the markets in the Far East and Middle East. And uh, Italy came quite late to this game because it had only been unified as a nation state itself fairly recently. But it was very keen on developing a colony in Africa because um, it had a very high population rate and it thought that maybe an African colony would be a good place in which to settle poor African peasants who were in search of land to cultivate. So um, in 1869, an Italian priest who was acting bizarrely on behalf of an Italian shipping company bought the port of Assab, that's a key Eritrean port, from a local chief there. And Italy didn't really do much with Assab. But then in 1885, British officials who were running Egypt and were therefore in uh, control of the port of Massawa, an Eritrean, today it's an Eritrean port, but at the time it was controlled by Egypt. They invited the Italians in to um, capture the port. So the Italians seized Massawa and then they started sending troops up into the, the highlands because they were really bent on taking the Abyssinian highlands. They saw, you know, the, that, that very rocky, dry area down at the co- coast did not interest them. They wanted the fertile inland, uh, the interior. So they ended up building a settlement in Asmara, having fought their way against a local Abyssinian warlord called Rasalula. And Asmara was where they sort of put their mark. And eventually an Italian um, politician called Ferdinando Martini became the first civilian governor of Eritrea and started setting up um, schools, hospitals, a legal system, administering the place. But it was it was a really tiny colony and sort of militarily and strategically irrelevant. What happened, the second phase uh, came in 1922, 
when Benito Mussolini took over in Italy, its fascist dictator. And he was a great nationalist and, and someone who believed in the purifying quality of, um, of war, that it was good for people to go to war. And so he launched the Abyssinian campaign. And the Abyssinian campaign had two, two sort of main intentions. One was um, that uh, once again, it was, a, it was a, there was a story of settling Italian peasants in the, uh, the fertile interior of Abyssinia, as it was called then. But the second was to avenge the Battle of Adwa, because Italy's um, first advance into Abyssinia had been had been stopped at a place called Adwa in 1896, where um, uh, there was the first ever major defeat of a European army by African troops. So it was a massive humiliation for Italy, and uh, Mussolini wanted to avenge that. And avenge it he did. Uh, he sent uh, troops, he used Eritrea as a sort of jumping off point, built up his forces there and then invaded um, Abyssinia and used chemical warfare, very shockingly. And by 1936, um, Italy was in in control of uh, Ethiopia and Haile Selassie, um, the emperor of the day, had been forced to flee. He took the railway. He he fled uh, into exile in Bath, as it happens. You can visit a hotel there which has a plaque uh, to where he stayed when he arrived in Bath. And he warned the world as he left. He gave a great speech at the League of Nations and said, you know, be, beware, fascism is a threat to all of you, not just Ethiopia. But at the, at the time, you know, European powers were preparing for World War II. They were rearming because they realised that Hitler and Mussolini were going to be an issue, but they didn't want to take on Mussolini at that stage of the game. So that then started the sort of second great phase of Italian colonialism in Eritrea, uh, which was very different from the first. I mean, it saw this great um, investment in Eritrea. Eritrea today has, you know, one of the most beautiful modernist cities in Asmara. It's a UNESCO Her- World Heritage Site. It's got these these beautiful modernist um, buildings, these palazzis, these villas, these cinemas, these public buildings, uh, because the best fascist era architects of Italy based themselves in Asmara and started building these, these beautiful buildings. And it looked like, you know, it was called Little Italy. But this is the city that Mussolini built. The following clip comes from an Australian TV programme about Asmara's Italian architecture. Restoration has already begun on the city's most famous landmark, the Fiat Taliero Garage, a winged tribute to Italian futurism of the 1930s. It was designed to imitate an aeroplane, and uh, it was the time in Italian architecture, colonial architecture, when they were experimenting. They had um, plenty of leeway, and so the architect designed this building like an aeroplane. So it was a case of anything goes. Perhaps they could do things here that they wouldn't be permitted to do back in Italy. That's right. I wonder whether they would be allowed to have built a structure like this in in Rome. Eritreans have resisted the urge, so common across Africa, to destroy the colonial past. But it's more than just nostalgia. There's a hard-headed realisation... Eritrea, with its economy in ruins, may need the past to help fund the future. Cultural assets like this will uh, be behind the success of uh, tourism. So uh, it's a very, very important and, and, and unique and very important cultural asset. And if Bagzai Gabrimedin has got anything to do with it, Africa's best-kept secret 
will be a secret no more. But it was also a, a place where, uh, as fascism got more and more sort of obnoxious, the um, racial discrimination, the uh, racial segregation laws that were being enforced in Italy towards Jews were also uh, introduced in, in uh, Eritrea. Uh, and so there'd been a lot of um, mixed marriages between Italians and Eritrean women. And suddenly, you know, uh, it wasn't possible for Italians to to give their children their names. So they essentially became bastards. The two parts of, of the town where became segregated. There was a sort of poor slums that were, where the Eritreans lived. And then there were the sort of nice white villas, you know, for the Italians. Cinemas were segregated. Uh, queues in shops, you know, were separate. Eritreans were not welcome to sort of sit in the cafes in the Italian quarter and have a drink. Uh, and if you were walking along the pavement and you met an Italian coming you know, towards you as an Eritrean, you were supposed to step off the pavement in respect for your white master. So it was a sort of nasty uh, system of apartheid. I think the the irony is that now, if you look back, uh, I mean, it's very clear that the Italian colonial experience, it's left a certain bitterness and anger there. People get very upset about, particularly about the, uh, the fact that um, uh, during the Italian era, they were only allowed to go to school for four years. So their education was truncated. But, you know, there's no doubt that if Italy hadn't colonized Eritrea, it would never have existed as a country. And that it made that whole area, the country that was carved out in the Horn of Africa, was very, um, you know, trade savvy. It was industrialized at a much quicker pace than Ethiopia to the south was, uh, as it became, Abyssinia became Ethiopia. Um, that, um, you know, there were all sorts of sort of know-how, technical know-how, manufacturing expertise, skills that were were brought into Eritrea by this influx of not just Italians, but also Greeks and other other na- nationalities. Uh, and that it was a more cosmopolitan, a more more industrialised country as a, as a result. So Eritreans sort of, on the one hand, they're quite bitter about il- Italian colonialism, but they also know that it made them different, special. And there is this sort of sense of Itali- uh, Eritrean superiority. And I think Italian colonialism plays a sort of strange role in that. How did Haile Selassie, the Ethiopian emperor, gain control over Eritrea after the Second World War, after he was restored to power in his own country? And what was the nature of his rule over Eritrea? So he 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 had fled in 1936, um, and then you know what what you saw uh, once World War Two broke out was that the Allied realised they needed to get Italy Italian forces out of out of um, Africa. Um, and so uh, they were going to have to sort of seize, capture Eritrea as a, as a, you know Italy's primordial colony. Uh, so there was a very famous battle. It's called the Battle of Keren in 1941, where British troops um, basically took on the Italian fascists and their supporting Eritrean Ascari. The Ascari were this mercenary force of, of, of soldiers who'd been trained up by the Italians, very famous for their military prowess. Mm-hmm. And they staged this, this massive battle in the Battle of Keren, <laughs> fairly high blood, um, death toll. Um, but the Brits eventually broke through at Keren and then rolled into Asmara, seized Asmara, and then were left in a caretaker capacity, not only in Asmara, but also in Addis, where they, they, they reinstated Haile Selassie, put him back on the 
on the throne. From the edge of the Red Sea come these pictures of the fall of Eritrea. All the way in, we saw destroyed war material, planes, aerodromes, and even the radio station. It was all very untidy. In this British newsreel from 1941, a correspondent describes the Italian defeat and the capture of Misawa. I was in nice time to photograph the head of the British convoy entering the coastal town. Taking a look round the place, I saw where the Italians had driven several tanks into the sea. Ships in the harbour and at the wharves had been scuttled and put out of action. They must have been very angry. The Admiral Defender of Masawa was decidedly camera shy, and I was rudely told to go somewhere. Well, that's that. I don't care much for the place, but it means the end of Italy's possession of Eritrea. And then the question became, well, what do we do with Eritrea? Because the British ran it for a while as in a caretaker capacity, but we're really not interested in it at all. And in fact, you know, they, they did indulge in some really fairly um, <laughs> flagrant asset stripping, removing all the infrastructure that the Italians had sort of put in place during their time there. Um, and there was a whole UN debate, uh, you know, was this uh, was Eritrea to become a trusteeship under Italian rule? People didn't like that idea. It seemed like it was rewarding Italy. Ethiopia wanted um, Eritrea to become, so Ethiopia, as Abyssinia became, wanted it to be part of uh, Ethiopia. And the Brits um, favoured carving the country in two and giving part of it to Sudan. And of course, the community inside Eritrea was was very much divided because uh, Eritrea's sort of biggest schism really is between the lowlanders uh, from the coastal areas who tend to be Muslim and the highlanders who are Christian Orthodox and have much more greater affinities with Christian highlanders in Ethiopia, especially in Tigray, in neighbouring Tigray. And so Eritrea divided uh, down the two. Haile Selassie was obsessed with controlling Eritrea. And there was a very simple reason with that is he wanted access to the sea. And so had all his predecessors, all the previous emperors of uh, of Abyssinia had been obsessed with the idea that being isolated, being landlocked meant that they would um, never benefit from trade, from interaction with the outside world. And that crucially, it would mean that they wouldn't be able to arm themselves against invasion. They wouldn't be able to get hold of all these nice modern weapons that the European powers were producing. So Haile Selassie saw that uh, Ethiopia without a coastline would never be, you know, he just thought it would be terribly exposed, terribly isolated and terribly underdeveloped. And Haile Selassie was a modernizer. He also regarded Eritrea as being sort of part, an integral part of the Axumite kingdom from which he saw himself as being descended. The Axumite kingdom, which was supposedly, you know, founded by the uh, sort of semi-mythical figure of Queen of Sheba, who'd had a relationship with Solomon in, in, in Jerusalem and had given birth, supposedly, according to the myth, to the uh, Emperor Menelik. So he wanted union with uh, Ethiopia. Uh, soon uh, there was a party called the Unionist Party that was uh, set up with, by Christian Highlanders in Eritrea, that community. The Muslim community was not at all happy about that. It, things got quite violent. There was a sort of shifter campaign going on in the countryside, lots of weapons uh, doing the rounds. Uh, eventually, the UN sent a commission to decide what to do in Eritrea, and they um, decided that it was going to 
be federated with Ethiopia, but not under direct Ethiopian control. So it was supposed to be an autonomous unit federated with Ethiopia with its own parliament, which was called the Baito. That was in 1950. The Brits left. The Baito, the parliament, takes over. Eritrea, an Italian colony conquered by the British, has been under our control for seven years. Now, with the approval of the United Nations, she is united with her neighbouring country, Ethiopia. Pathé News carried an exultant report on the union between Ethiopia and Eritrea. Into the throne room of the Imperial Palace comes Haile Selassie, the Lion of Judah, to sign the Federation Act that will unite the two countries. The Emperor, who has done much for the people of his own country, will bring a firm but just rule to the land of Eritrea. And the Federation lasts uh, just 10 years because it was basically undermined, sabotaged, suborned, especially uh, the parliamentarians who belonged to it were sort of bought off by Ethiopia, which was absolutely determined that Eritrea was going to become Ethiopian. And in 1962, there was a meeting of the Baito in which they voted themselves out of existence. And suddenly Eritrea becomes part of Ethiopia. And there's, um, it's funny because a lot of Eritreans remember this episode and they still resent the role that the UN played in it because the UN was meant to have been consulted and to have um, agreed, signed off on any change to the federal status of Eritrea. And they failed to do that. They completely ignored what happened in 1962. The Eritreans appealed to them, wrote to them, petitioned them. Totally, they closed, you know, that that book was closed as far as they were concerned. So Eritrea became part of Ethiopia. And very quickly, all the promises that the Ethiopians had made to the parliamentarians of the Baito proved to be empty. You know, they'd been promised there would be massive investment, that there would be sort of, you know, companies, Ethiopian companies would be moved to Eritrea and would take on Eritrean staff, that local culture would be respected. And instead, you saw this increasingly heavy-handed rule by um, Haile Selassie, where uh, a lot of the things that the Brits had actually tolerated, you know, free press, trade unions, at the start of what you would call a human rights regime, were crushed under the Ethiopians. And uh, one of the most unpopular uh, moves they made was that they introduced Amharic as the official language. Uh, They also, for example, no longer displayed the Eritrean flag, which was essentially the UN, a blue flag, the UN flag. So it was very clear to Eritreans that their local culture was of no interest to the Ethiopians, and now they were going to have to to learn Amharic in in school. So very quickly, things became quite um, oppressive, uh, and it was no surprise that in 1961, the uh, Eritrean Liberation Front started up, and this was the first uh, separatist movement in Eritrea. It was um, launched uh, in Cairo from exile uh, by a bunch of Eritrean students and intellectuals. Many of them were from the lowlands, the Muslim lowlands, because it was the Muslim community that was most dismayed by this union with Ethiopia. And they began sort of attacking symbols of uh, Ethiopian authority, police stations and the like. So you, you see the sort of first startings of a separatist movement. And at this time, though, Haile Selassie was being bolstered by the Americans, who had discovered the strange peculiarity of the highlands, the Hamasian highlands. The Hamasian plateau is bizarrely a very uh, strange place in terms of 
the way in which it receives radio signals from around the world. Maybe it's because the air there is very pure, there's very, very little interference, there are very few local habitations, but there are spots, they discovered that there were spots on the Hamasian plateau where you could listen in, you know, if you had a, a transmitter or a receiver, you could listen in on the whole world. And so um, uh, what they called Cagnew Station, uh, where American um, GIs, young men, were sent to put on headphones and listen to the world, became a really important listening post for the Americans during the Cold War. And that meant that they were, the Americans were always very, very keen to prop up and support Haile Selassie, give him technical help fund his army, train his military officers, because it meant that in return they would get free access to Cagney Station, which meant they could listen in on on Russia, on the Soviet Union, find out what was going on and what was being planned. So there was, you know, this Ethiopia became this sort of prime ally uh, and in the process, uh, this prime Cold War ally of, of Washington, and in the process Eritrea really became a pawn in that game. What effect did the overthrow of Haile Selassie in the 1970s and the subsequent rise of the Derg to power have on Eritrea? What you see um, as the years go by in the 70s is that Haile Selassie, um, who who really had centralised power in his hands, you know, it was he had a royal court clustered around him, but he he very much was sort of the man who micromanaged everything and knew where all the skeletons were buried and he developed Alzheimer's and at the same time there were all sorts of issues with sort of you know various parts of Ethiopia threatening to break off and a lot of um, unhappiness in his own army the very army that the US had been militarizing and and building up and training and so there was one attempted coup which failed uh, and ended quite brutally. It was suppressed quite brutally. But in 1974, there was a second military coup. It was staged by a group of um, young military officers, very idealistic military officers who called themselves the Derg. And they they overturned Haile Selassie. They were left-leaning, you know, Marxists in their thinking. So they did away with the royal court, a bunch of um, former generals and ministers were executed. And they take over Ethiopia and say, you know, this place is stuck in the feudal age and we need to modernize it. And they have a very nationalist agenda. Ethiopia, above all, is one of their mottos. And so they were very keen to suppress dissents in Eritrea. We're now going to hear some clips from a British documentary about the war in Eritrea that was broadcast in 1975. Asmara is under martial law, ruled by the army. The soldiers are jumpy, patrolling hostile streets. Six months ago, they fought a pitched battle with the guerrillas here in Asmara. Afterwards, the troops ran amok, looting, raping and killing. Now they are feared and hated. Asmara is quiet. Once busy streets are deserted. Since January, there's been a curfew from dusk until dawn. It is wise to be early indoors. It's not hard for the guerrillas to penetrate Asmara. The city's a warren of small streets and back alleys. The soldiers can control the city, but only by the law of the gun. The people regard them as an army of occupation. The revolutionary government of Ethiopia 
doesn't relish the oppression it practices here, but believes it's defending the unity, even the survival of the nation. On the mountain road between Asmara and Keren, troops of the 2nd Division patrol in convoy, 200 soldiers at a time. For six months, they fought to keep this road open. Battles are frequent, ambush is common. Many soldiers have died. They pass silent, frequently hostile villages. The guerrillas claim that 34 villages have been bombed or burned by the army. The army admits to the destruction of six. The army can win a pitched battle, but not a guerrilla war. The rebels launch sudden attacks, then disappear into the mountain night. The war in Eritrea has now lasted 14 years, but never has it been so fierce, never has it cost so much. Nearly half the Ethiopian army is pinned down, holding Eritrea. The journalist Jonathan Dimbleby went on to speak with Ethiopia's military governor in Eritrea, Gitachu Nadu. General, how long do you think the struggle is going to go on for? Well, this, of course, I can't tell for how long, but this is, of course, a high policy. Does, it, does a solution have to be a political solution, in your view? Uh, well, I don't think this is a political solution. You know, this is an absolutely complicated situation. But this is a different organization and different countries who are helping these guerrillas and which maybe they want to harm the country itself. <clears throat> Otherwise they know that they will never separate Eritrea from Ethiopia. So you think the fighting will therefore go on for some time? Yes. It will. Soon afterwards the governor himself was executed because of a power struggle within the military regime. They did what most armies do when they are facing a, a, a sort of guerrilla movement, which uh, is supported quite popular with local people. They hit hard, they hit civilians, they raised villages, you know, they were hitting, um, they sort of wiped out flocks, they set fire to, to crops and um, committing civilian massacres. And so as a result of this in the 70s, you see this massive sort of departure of young people from Eritrea, uh, they flee. They flee abroad, start new lives, but they also flee into the liberation movements: the Eritrean Liberation Front, the ELF, and the Eritrean People's Liberation Front, which I'll talk more about later. So there's a massive recruitment, and at the start, those two liberation movements were sort of um, doing quite well in their sort of struggle against the Ethiopian army, and they had liberated uh, a lot of key towns in Eritrea by 1977 apart from Asmara, Masawa and Berentu. This news report on the fighting in Eritrea was broadcast in 1977. The reporter John Snow spoke to an Ethiopian officer who had been taken captive by Eritrean guerrillas. But what about your feelings for Ethiopia? Do you want to go back? Well, for the future, if it is continuing like this, or if, if not, I don't want to go back to Ethiopia from, time, from this time on. I want to go outside and work and help my family. You're not interested in fighting I for Ethiopia want, anymore? I don't anymore. 
And it looked like they were about to seize control of the country. But what happened then is Mengistu, who Mengistu Haile Mariam, who was the Derg's uh, leader uh, and became president, um, he, at this stage, tired of his alliance with the Americans, who he felt were, were not giving him the weapons he needed to put down the Eritrean secession. Uh, and so he turned to Moscow. Um, and and appealed to Moscow for help. And at that stage, Moscow was actually supporting Ethiopia's rival in the region, which was Somalia. But they decided that, you know, if given a choice between Somalia and Ethiopia, Ethiopia was a country that they wanted as their key Horn of Africa ally. So they just moved all their advisors. They dropped Somalia, moved all their advisors to Ethiopia, to, as, uh, to Eritrea. The Soviet officers were living in Asmara. And suddenly funneled all this weaponry, uh, and it was heavy weaponry. I mean, this was tanks and, you know, jet fighters and, and sort of, you know, big cannons. Moved them all to um, to Asmara and to Eritrea. And that turned the tide of the war. So the liberation movements in, um, in uh, Eritrea suddenly find themselves on the back foot and they stage what was termed a strategic withdrawal and surrender a lot of territory and and just sort of um take you know they 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 retreat into this mountain stronghold in an area in the Rora mountains called uh, Nakfa and that's where they sort of sit it out um for the next couple of decades so i think you know that the the Derg period was extremely brutal for Eritrea, and it was really when you see the sort of forging of this this this, um, this national kind of character, sort of dogged, you know, self reliance and sort of resistance to Ethiopian rule. One of the issues was because I mean the liberation movements that emerged were all left leaning, but because Moscow was supporting the Derg, which was you know a Marxist movement, they couldn't look as so many African separatist movements did, they couldn't look to Moscow for support. So uh, at the beginning, the ELF had, had depended on some Arab support, but, you know, as time went on, they were really largely on their own and they relied on contributions from uh, Eritreans working and living abroad. There were so many thousands of them and they had a very well-established tithing system but they also relied on cannibalizing, seizing all this sort of excess weaponry that the Soviet Union sent to Eritrea. They they ended up capturing huge amounts of it and taught themselves how to drive Soviet tanks and how to use all this weaponry and then turned it on the Ethiopian army. The current ruling party in Eritrea is directly descended from that campaign of guerrilla warfare against Ethiopian rule in the 1970s and 80s. What was the nature of that campaign and in particular the nature of the political movement that led it? Yeah, I mean, uh, the Eritrean struggle, as it's known, became a, a kind of favourite with uh, left-wing intellectuals here in the West. Um, you know, you you would get sort of um, members of the Labour Party heading off for um, to get to NACFA and the stronghold, the EPLF stronghold, in Eritrea, you had to go via Sudan, and it was a you know it was a long and difficult trip, and a lot of um, activists, left wing activists in the West, did that trip, and um, and so did left wing journalists, and they went there, and they were just blown away by what they found because they sort of came out with the story of this sort of unified, focused, disciplined 
left-wing movement um, fighting against oppressive uh, imp- you know rule from the dirt but um the the interesting thing of course um is that um the the Eritrean liberation movement sort of uh, had its own internal civil war uh, at the start uh, because the first movement had been the Eritrean liberation front and it was largely muslim and um it was largely recruiting in the lowlands. And what happened is that it, there was a breakaway movement within the ELF by Christian Highlanders. Many of them were young students. One of them was Isaiah Safawerki, the current president of Eritrea. Uh, and they, they, they sort of disagreed on all sorts of sort of ideological points with the ELF, which they thought was sort of small minded and regionalist and sort of unambitious, and they broke away. And they actually were armed clashes between members of the ELF and the Eritrean People's Liberation Front, the EPLF, which replaced it. And eventually, the EPLF became the dominant uh, liberation movement, and it chased members of the ELF out of the country and into Sudan by the early 80s. You know, most of them were out of Eritrea. And then it was, you know, the EPLF was the was the main uh, game in town with this base in Nakfa. And I think, uh, you know, I've spoken to people, I, I'm not of the generation that went out to NACFA then, but I've been to it subsequently. And it's really fascinating because what people tell you is that if you visited the EPLF in NACFA, you know, that everything was done in the dark at night because there was constant bombardment by the Ethiopian Air Force. I mean, they, they were constant sorties and they were just bombing that area to smithereens. So everyone lived underground and they were very famously, there was a, uh, an underground hospital in a place called Orota. There were underground laboratories. There were underground schools for the children of the fighters. Uh, you see emerging this figure of the sort of heroic Tegedlai, who were the, the, the warriors, the fighters, who were both men and women, interestingly. Uh, 30% of the PLF were women. And the women dressed like the men and they fought like the men. It was very egalitarian. Um, and it was a very sophisticated movement. I mean, they had their own newspaper. Uh, they had their own film unit, which captured all sorts of priceless footage. They had theatres. They had guest rooms for visiting journalists. They had underground offices. They had sports contests. And they even staged international conferences, all of it, you know, in this mounted stronghold under constant bombardment, which would be attended by sort of left-wing politicians from Europe. Uh, and one of the people I interviewed for my book was a, a cook who had taught himself how to cater for these conferences. And he told me at one stage he catered for a conference which attracted 6,000 delegates. So they, they, and they were, they, they were very impassioned about education. Uh, they, they wanted to make sure, you know, that they were, they wanted grassroots support. They wanted to educate the people of Eritrea. They went out to the villages and, and taught people. It was all, rather left-wing, rather Marxist in its nature. But, you know, it was about education. They had barefoot doctors who would visit the villages. So it, it was a, a very um, committed, impassioned, ideologically driven campaign. And, um, uh, you know, I think that's that's the sort of golden era which people still look back on with a, with a lot of, um, you know, it's got a certain romantic glow to it. And, you know, there was a sense of Eritrea was um, sui generis. It, it uh, sort of, there was a sense of exceptionalism and also philosophy of self-reliance that came through that. And I think, you know, that's been as much of a curse as a blessing as time has gone by. 
What role did the EPLF play in the final demise of Mengistu's regime at the beginning of the 1990s? Well, it was really crucial um, because, um, you know, I, I, I don't think Mengistu would have been toppled had it not been for the EPLF. What you see in Tigray in um, northern um, Ethiopia is uh, at a certain stage the TPLF, Tigray People's Liberation Front, is born. It's led by Meles Zanawi. It teams up with the EPLF. It's as appalled by, you know, the Derg and, and rule from Addis as, as the Eritreans are. So the two units sort of join forces. The Eritreans were always the more experienced in that relationship. But the fact that, you know, the Derg was under attack uh, and such fierce attack in both Tigray and Eritrea meant that, you know, it had to sort of focus so much of its army north and that it was fighting on several fronts. And um, its army was extremely demoralised. The war went on far too long. It didn't seem to have much ideological content at a certain point. The Amharas and the Oromos in central and southern Ethiopia were also, you know, <laughs> contesting rule from Addis. And at a certain stage, of course, uh, the Cold War was also coming to an end. So Moscow was no longer quite so keen to be sending these huge amounts of expensive equipment, military equipment to Eritrea. And Mengistu was constantly asking for more deliveries, more deliveries. And then his demoralized officers would leave the equipment on the battlefield. Thousands of prisoners would be taken by the PLF. So it, was, it wasn't really serving any purpose. So in 1988, there was a sort of turning point. It was the Battle of Alphabet, as it's known, in which the Eritreans broke out of their mountain stronghold and took the upper hand. Then there was an attempted military coup uh, inside Ethiopia. And although Mengistu managed to bring that under control and he executed all his best and brightest officers, uh, you know, there was a feeling that the, the regime was there on sufferance. Marxist army chief of staff, and until now, one of the world's more camera-shy presidents. In 1990, Mengistu granted a rare interview to a British television crew. He pledged to fight on against the EPLF, no matter what the cost might be. Mengistu says he's not prepared to make any concessions on Ethiopian unity, whatever the price. Now... There is no authority in Ethiopia, no leadership, most certainly, which has the mandate to allow the emergence of an independent state carved off from Ethiopia. Whatever they sacrifice, we are ready to pay. Even if it means another 30 years of war? Even if it continues for 100 years. Are we to sign away the fate of our country? Is this generation, which is fully committed to the establishment of a just, democratic and united Ethiopia, to sit over the disintegration of a country whose existence has been defended for millennia against all kinds of regional expansionists and European colonialists? Supposing these rebels manage to capture the city of Asmara, and declare independence. Well, that does not mean that the war has come to an end. Never. It will never come to an end. If they have this illusion, they are fighting for the unending and interminable extermination of the people. There was a massive tank battle in Masawa on the coast. 
the biggest tank battle since World War II, uh, another sort of high point for the EPLF. And eventually the Ethiopian garrison in Asmara, in the capital, surrendered. And Eritrean fighters, the Tegedlai, just the Tegedelti, they, they, they just rolled in their trucks through the streets of Asmara and they were cheered by the local population. And very soon after, down south in Addis, uh, the TPLF and the EPLF also rolled their, tra- uh, their tanks into Addis. Um, and Mengistu, before that happened, he had already nominally gone to inspect some troops in the south of the country, and instead he told his pilot to keep keep going, uh, had fled the country uh, and taken up exile in Zimbabwe, where he lives to this day. The following clip comes from an interview with Yamani Meskel, an EPLF spokesman. He was speaking shortly before allies of the Eritrean movement marched into the Ethiopian capital in May 1991. We are maintaining the military pressure. In uh, Asmara, the Ethiopian army has been encircled for more than a year now. Uh, the government has a very tenuous uh, presence in Asab. In Ethiopia, the EPRDF, the major uh, opposition movement, has been scoring a succession of victories. Uh, they have captured a number of uh, towns in the last three days. Uh, they have cut the link between uh, Assad and uh, Addis Ababa, so there is growing military pressure. Three decades later, Yamani Meskel is the Minister of Information in the Eritrean government. So that was the end of, of Mengistu, and that was the end of the Derg, because the TPLF took over, and took over control of Ethiopia, the head of this EPRDF coalition of like-minded parties. It was always the dominant party. But from then on, the TPLF were were running Ethiopia. You know, looking back on the struggle, as it's called, the armed struggle in in Eritrea, you know, Eritrea had pulled off this amazing victory. You know, it's this sort of small rebel movement fighting one of the best armed, biggest armies in Africa, and it had won. But it has to be said it was at a price because I think, you know, the death toll for that that struggle is reckoned to have been between 150,000 and 200,000 Eritreans. And, you know, one in every 50 Eritrean families lost someone. And if you visit households in Eritrea today, you'll often see on, on, on the mantelpiece there's a martyr's certificate, which is what the government gave out to people who lost someone at the front fighting the Ethiopians. It's a sort of blue certificate that they get. Um, So it came at a price, that victory. What was the relationship between the EPLF and the Tigrayan leaders such as Melezenawe, who dominated Ethiopia's government after 1991? Well, at the start, it was was a very good relationship, or it seemed to be. Um, I think there was a feeling here in the West, you know, that at that time, you know, this is, we're talking about the early 90s, Eritrea became independent in 1993, that they were these two key countries in the Horn of Africa, Eritrea and Ethiopia, they were both run by movements that had been established by a guerrilla, guerrilla forces, and they were both left-leaning, they were, you know, very much committed to developing countries, they were in the game to sort of combat poverty and famine because they both leaders knew that their their countries were desperately poor and needed to 
you know, <laughs> were a hungry, hungry, poor populations. Uh, and and there was a sort of uh, the, the the you know I saw myself for working in Melisanar. We were labelled you know part of a group of Renaissance leaders that were also included. Yoweri Museveni in Uganda, Paul Kagame in, in Rwanda, and at one stage people even thought Lauren Kabila was a, a Renaissance leader. Uh, and so everyone was sort of thinking, this is great. These guys, you know, this, they've, they've, they're sort of progressively minded former rebel leaders who who know what they want. But things sort of didn't work out um, as they were meant to because uh, relations between the TPLF in Addis and the EPLF in Asmara began to sour. So the TPLF immediately granted Eritrea independence in 1993 after a referendum. It became a country again. It stopped being the northernmost province of Ethiopia and became a, a country in its own right. And there was investment pouring into both parts. You know, Mekele was being built up at the TPLF and um, the diaspora was coming back to Eritrea. This is when I started visiting Eritrea and you saw all these these Eritrean businessmen coming back and starting up factories. And, you know, there was this sort of building works everywhere all around town. Um, there was this incredible energy. They were replanting all the trees that had been destroyed during the struggle uh, trying to repair all the war damage, um, and you saw former Tegadelti were becoming, you know, taxi drivers or setting up little businesses. So it, it felt like a, a golden age. But it has to be said there had been always been some um, differences between the TPLF and the EPLF, uh, ideological differences amongst other things. But also there had been moments where they had come had been on very, very bad terms during the struggle. So, for example, the TPLF was very bitter about the fact that during the struggle, uh, at one stage, uh, Eritrea had closed off access via Sudan, access on which the TPLF relied to get um, not only military supplies, but famine relief. And that had left that really rankled. There were also ideological differences because um, the TPLF, one of the first things they did was to introduce this concept of ethnic uh, federalism in Ethiopia. And this gave all these different parts of um, Ethiopia, it granted them the right to secede uh, 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 if from Ethiopia if that was what they wanted. And Eritrea and Isaiah Safawerki, the president, did not sort of approve of ethnic federalism. Uh, he saw it as a form of sectarianism and he suspected that there was an agenda behind it, that Tigray was maybe planning to use it to as a as a way of building up greater Tigray, which could then become a bit of a threat to Eritrea because it was just its neighbour to the south. Um, uh, and there was also a sort of um, uh, a long-standing resentment between the EPLF and the TPLF because the EPLF was the older of the two rebel movements and it had had all the weaponry and it had it tended to adopt a rather patronising attitude towards the TPLF, which had only seen the light of day in the 1970s. And you would hear former fighters, Eritrean fighters, saying we had to teach these people how to fight. Uh, we had to teach the TPLF how to fight. But now the TPLF were running this huge, you know, country, which was the modern Ethiopia, which had a huge army, uh, and Eritrea was just this little dry, arid land to the north. And t- the TPLF felt it deserved rather more consideration than that. So it resented the sort of patronising tone with which the Eritreans would, would treat it and treat Ethiopia. 
So that rankled. There was a sort of bad blood there. And then in the late 1990s, um, some financial and economic issues begin, began to be a problem because Eritrea decided it wanted to uh, introduce its own currency, uh, the NACFA. And Ethiopia didn't see any need for that. And it said, let's just continue to use the beer, which is, uh, you know, printed in uh, in uh, Addis. And Eritrea was saying, well, no, we're a sovereign state now. We need our own currency. So uh, uh, things got very bad on that front and so bad that um, trade ground to a halt between the two countries. So once again, you know, uh, this whole problem of access to the sea was an issue. And there had been a series of border incidents uh, along this colonially demarcated border. As with all colonial borders, there were always areas which were ambiguous. It wasn't really clear who ran which part, you know, whether the administration, you know, the, the, the map said one thing, but the administrative record said another. And in a, um, along the border in a place called Badme, which is a little village, in 1998, May 1998, Eritrean, after an incident there between armed men on both sides, the Eritreans sent in their tanks. And suddenly the two countries were at war again over their border, over this undemarcated border. And that really took the world by surprise because everyone thought, oh, my goodness, you know, how can this happen? These were two former rebel movements, we thought they they were the, you know, kissing cousins. They were the, sort of, there's so many similarities between the Tigray Highlands and and um, and Eritrea, you know, the the, the Highlanders the, of those Tigrinya-speaking areas, they speak the same language, they've got the same religion, you know, uh, many of them are related to one another, they knew each other, they fought alongside each other during the struggle, what on earth is going on? But yeah, that was a sort of deciding moment in... Uh, Eritrean and Ethiopian history. This was the sound of an excited crowd welcoming Mele Zanawe to Asmara as Eritrea became formally independent. After the outbreak of war, Zanawi accused his former allies of betrayal. When we were friends, I was not of the opinion that he was capable of invading us. I was not of the opinion that he was capable of stabbing us in the back. A lot of water has uh, flown under the bridge since then. And that requires a review of attitudes and approach uh, of the past. This was Isaiah Safwerki's version of events at a press conference in Washington. We were told that the government and its institutions are working on a new document and trying to clearly identify where the borders of the two countries lie. We were waiting with patience. Unfortunately, things deteriorated. The government moved more to impose policies of repression, dismantling administration, removing populations from uh, their uh, uh, village, which uh, I think at the end of the day, 1998, provoked a reaction. And that reaction was not an overreaction on my, uh, to my understanding. We tried to show restraint, but uh, again, the fact that the parliament of Ethiopia on May 13th announced or declared war 
was uh, what internationalized the issue. We didn't, uh, even at that point, uh, want to uh, have the issue out of a bilateral engagement. I again called on the Prime Minister, asked him what the wisdom was to go to the Parliament, which doesn't know anything about the uh, situation and the events, to declare war. It could have been resolved quietly, bilaterally, without making too much fanfare. Unfortunately, the choice of the government of Ethiopia was to declare war using the parliament as a vehicle. Do you see this as well, as when, when this conflict started erupting, that, uh, that the two governments, that your government and the government, and Ethiopia's government, could not resolve this in part because you were so close at one point that it's, that's a fight in the family at all? I have tried to give an explanation of the events prior to 1997 and after 1997. How that uh, was influenced by the intimate relationship we had, I don't know. What were the outcomes of the war between Eritrea and Ethiopia? And in the aftermath, how did Isaiah Safwerki go on to transform the Eritrean political system into one of the world's most rigid dictatorships. What happened was that um, basically Eritrea lost that war. Uh, it lasted for two years. And uh, by the time it ended with the Algiers Agreement in 2000, uh, Ethiopian troops were in possession and in control of, sort of alarmingly large swathes of Eritrea. And at that point, the two countries were persuaded by the international community to go to arbitration and a boundary commission was appointed. The war created a a crisis within the regime in Eritrea because um, there was a feeling in Eritrea that this had been an unnecessary war, that negotiations should have been able to sort out the issue of where the border lay and all these economic and financial issues, and that Isaias had been pig-headed had not wanted to listen and had also made a series of key military mistakes, strategic mistakes, and that he had refused to listen to his generals and had very much taken, you know, conducted the war strategy himself. He had personalised it. Um, And um, what you saw was, um, this was very openly discussed because Eritrea was going through a very sort of, I mean, it's been described to me as the Prague Spring of Eritrean history, where Newspapers were discussing Isaias's failings. There was a, a Berlin Manifesto, as it was called, signed by a group of Eritrean intellectuals uh, who were saying, listen, you know, this just shows you the, the failings of one-man rule. Um, we need to uh, institute our constitution, which caters for multi-party democracy. And then there was a, a group of... Um, of ministers, cabinet ministers who went to see, they were known as the G15, they went to see ISIS, they called for a meeting with ISIS to discuss these these issues. And instead of uh, listening to them, or, or rather, you know, he may have listened to them, but they were then rounded up, jailed, and uh, have never been seen since. And the G15 is this great sort of silence in Eritrean history, because all these former comrades, they were people who'd fought alongside Isaias, his, his sort of key commanders, men who are immensely respected in the community, 
disappeared into jails. Uh, we know that some of them have died. Um, they're aging now. It's been 21 years since they were arrested. And with that, in that sort of stroke, um, you know, Eritrea became a dictatorship. I mean, I think the signs, if you look back, the signs of, of, of Isaias's autocratic tendencies were always there. Uh, we know that during the struggle, the armed struggle, that there were various challenges launched um, against his leadership of the EPLF, and they were brutally suppressed. I mean, people were executed, uh, you know, at the, at the war front, which is quite extraordinary when you think that these people were, were fighting the Ethiopian army at the time, but they were still a series of purges within the EPLF. And when uh, in 1991, the EPLF turned into, you know, took on this new name, the People's Front for Democracy and Justice, the PFDJ, it was the only party in Eritrea. There was a constitution, a multi-party constitution that was that was widely debated around Eritrea. Everyone was expecting, waiting for it to be implemented, to be ratified and implemented, and it never was. So that was the first moment where people were thinking, why, why isn't the constitution being ratified? You know, why isn't it being implemented? And then we see this, the, the Bad May War, the rounding up of the G15. And effectively, that's the end of Eritrean democracy. And what you see is all the sort of various um, parts of Eritrean, the Eritrean system, which could stand up or maybe defy uh, Isaias are silenced uh, one by one. So eventually, you know, the press is closed down. Um, as Murray University ends up being closed down, the Orthodox Church is silenced. Uh, when there's a sort of feisty leader of the Orthodox Church, the same thing happens with the, the Grand Mosque. Parliament becomes, you know, a total shadow of itself and no serious decisions are taken at Parliament. And and what you end up is a situation in, in which Isaias uh, and a very small group of aides who've been with him, you know, for many, many years and some key generals are essentially taking all the key decisions in Eritrea. On the show today, Eritrean President Isaias Afwerki. He came to power following a three-decade struggle. For in 2008, Isaias Afwerki spoke to Al Jazeera to mark the 17th anniversary of independence. He brushed aside questions about political repression in Eritrea. When are elections going to be held in Eritrea? The way elections scheduled for 2001, they didn't take place. When is that going to happen? What elections? Elections in Eritrea. We'll see what the elections in the United States will bring about and we will wait for about three, four decades until we see genuine natural situations in Eritrea. You're saying Eritrea is going to wait three or four decades before it holds elections? Maybe more, maybe more, who knows? But isn't that, it... That, of course, depending on what you call elections, what you believe in elections, what you think in terms of elections, if you think... Elections are la elections we witnessed in Ethiopia, the elections in Zimbabwe, the elections in Jordan, the elections in Morocco, the elections in Kuwait. If you talk about those elections and the elections in Iraq and the elections in Afghanistan, like the uh, uh, process where the lawyer Jirga was brought about to form a government, if you're talking about these types of elections, I can tell you it may never happen. It may take decades. Well, aren't elections a central element of a democracy? And if you don't have elections, then you don't have a democracy. 
It depends on, on what you mean by democracy. If you really understand what democracy means, and if you're talking about genuine elections, that's another issue. If you're telling me that uh, the uh, democracy and the elections we have witnessed the last five or ten years, promoted by the United States as a separate agenda to serve its interests in a number of regions of this world, I can tell you these are not elections for us. This is not democracy for us. If you mean democracy is polarizing society vertically, that's not democracy for us. And these days it's become very fashionable for people to talk about democracy when society is divided and polarized along ethnic, religious lines, and we are not party to that kind of democracy. Well, are you prepared to tolerate any kind of opposition in Eritrea? What kind of opposition? Agents well, hired by the CIA from Langley or opposition from inside or well, any kind of opposition? There was something of a crackdown against the opposition by the Eritreans, by your government in 2001. Journalists Never. Not at, no, not at all. Not at all. You are disinformed. There has never been any opposition in this country. This is a total lie. And if you're talking about a political process, that is a different matter. If you're talking on opposition that has been fabricated and created by Langley, then you would call that uh, an opposition. I would not call that an opposition. Well, but you did close down the free press. And, you know, just to get to... The biggest change, though, uh, that uh, is instituted after the Bad May War is that, uh, you know, up until then, the men who came back from the armed struggle carrying their weapons were being gradually demobilized and disarmed and sort of trained and given civilian jobs. That all stopped with the war uh, against Ethiopia. And then what you see is open-ended military service being decreed as every citizen's duty, whether male or female, obviously within certain age limits. And youngsters in Eritrea are all being told that they're going to have to go off to Sawa in the middle of the Sahel and train because the country's on a war footing, because um, despite this boundary ruling that comes out of international arbitration, the border remains undemarcated. And so there's this requirement to, uh, the, the Eritreans are told by the government, we are in a no war, no peace situation. We have to be constantly on the alert. We could be invaded by any, at any time by Ethiopia. You have to do your national duty. And so they, they're just sent off endlessly to do uh, open-ended military service, which most people who look at Eritrea think that this is really Isaiah Safawerki's way of averting an Arab Spring type event in uh, in Eritrea, because if you keep young people endlessly drilling in the middle of the desert, you know they're, they're not going to represent a, a challenge to your rule. So that becomes a sort of the key story in Eritrea, because of course, so many young people don't want to do open-ended military service. It means they can't get married. It means they, they can't have children. They, they can't set up their own businesses. They can't pursue their education. Uh, and so they start leaving the country in droves. And this is what we've seen for 15 years, this flood of people out of the country at one stage, a couple of years ago, it was 5,000 departures every month, despite the fact that it's illegal to leave Eritrea. And uh, the UN had estimated that uh, a tenth of the country's population, half a million people, are living abroad now. And that, that, that's a sort of terrible indictment of, of the PFDJ and of Eritrea 
of the EPLF. I mean, the idea that young people would be desperate to leave this country that the EPLF fought so hard to establish is desperately sad. So uh, you've also had this this incredible isolation developing in which, you know, it's it's routine to talk about Eritrea now as a pariah state. And um, that's partly because sanctions have been slapped on the Eritrean government because um, what it started doing is it started supporting not just Ethiopian rebel movements that were challenging the regime in Addis, but also supporting Al-Shabaab in Somalia. So the sort of the states and other Western powers slapped sanctions on on the Eritreans for doing that. But also there was an increasing a feeling amongst Western diplomats, Western policymakers that Eritrea was just a problem, you know, nasty sort of oppressive regime, which was, you know, oppressing its own young people, supporting jihadism in Somalia, um, a sort of trouble-making, difficult, prickly go- government to deal with. And that uh, Ethiopia, where Melissa we always had, you know, was a, this very articulate prime minister who sat on Tony Blair's Africa Commission, who's incredibly well-educated and a, a great partner and sort of great, you know, um, had all these projects running with the World Bank, with the IMF, you know, so so sort of, you know, winning plaudits all around the world for his development work and, and his pro-poor policies. And so there was a sort of feeling developed that that Ethiopia was the, the player to deal with, giant Ethiopia, and the Eritrea was just this difficult pariah state in the, in the north. And it's it's I, I get quite annoyed with that characterization because there was a, a huge prickliness about the Eritreans during this period. But they did have cause for complaint because what had happened is during the Boundary Commission arbitration, the Boundary Commission had come up with a ruling in which it uh, it found that some of the places that had been fought over during the Bad May War did indeed belong to Ethiopia. But uh, Bad May, the key village of Bad May, where it had all started, actually, by rights, belonged in Eritrea. So on that particular point, the Eritreans were right. But Ethiopia was in occupation of that area. And so, you know, at that stage, the international community, which was guaranteeing this international arbitration process, should have said to Ethiopia, you need to pull out of um, Padme and demarcate the border. And the international community, despite the sort of millions of, of dollars of aid that it was giving Ethiopia, which gave it enormous leverage, never really applied any important pressure on the Ethiopians to uh, demarcate that border. And the Eritreans were very, very aware of that. And they felt that they were there were two types of treatment. You know, on the one hand, there was a the treatment that was allotted Ethiopia. And then there was the way you treated Eritrea because it was small, it wasn't fertile, and, uh, you know, it, it didn't seem very important um, uh, to the West. And that built this sense of grievance. And I, I think you really can draw a straight line between the um, Boundary Commission ruling on on Bad May and its failure to be implemented and the international community's failure to push for it to be implemented and what is happening now today in Tigray. In 2018, Isaiah Safwerki made an official visit to Ethiopia at the invitation of the country's new leader, Abiy Ahmed. SABC News from South Africa reported on the occasion. 
Eritrean President Isaias Afawaki is leading a delegation of high-level government officials. His visit comes a week after his Ethiopian counterpart, Prime Minister Abiy Ahmed, made an official visit to Eritrea. During his stay in Ethiopia, he will meet with Prime Minister Abiy to discuss further the peace initiative they signed while Prime Minister Abiy was in Asmara. Eritrean President Isaias is also expected to make a public address in Addis Ababa on Sunday. Ethiopians are excited because this is the first time he is visiting their country in over 20 years. Isaias' visit is symbolic. It gives more confidence to the effort to ease the military standoff that has existed since 1998 when the two countries fought. The two countries have signed a new declaration to cooperate in political, economic and social matters. Ethiopian Airlines has announced that it will resume daily flights to Eritrea from 18th of July. Telephone communication between the two countries has been unblocked. The quest to seek peace was extended to Eritrea by Ethiopia's Prime Minister Abiy Ahmed when he assumed power in April this year. Abiy Ahmed went on to receive the Nobel Peace Prize in 2019 for his outreach to Eritrea. This was part of his acceptance speech. Peace is a labor of love. Sustaining peace is hard work. Yet, we must cherish and nurture it. It takes a few to make war, but it takes a village and a nation to build peace. For me, nurturing peace is like planting and growing trees. Just like trees need water and good soil to grow, peace requires unwavering commitment, infinite patience, and goodwill to cultivate and harvest its dividends. However, the agreement between Ethiopia and Eritrea was soon followed by a destructive war in Tigray, with Eritrean forces taking part. Franz van Katsch carried this report on the consequences of the war in September of this year. Sexual and gender-based violence perpetrated on a staggering scale. The UN's International Commission of Human Rights Experts on Ethiopia delivered this damning report on Monday. There are reasonable grounds to believe that violations such as extrajudicial killings, rape, sexual violence and starvation of the civilian population as a method of warfare have been committed in Ethiopia since November 3, 2020. The Commission finds reasonable grounds to believe that, in several instances, these violations amount to war crimes and crimes against humanity. The report singled out both sides of the conflict, though it said Tigrayan women and girls have been targeted with particular violence and brutality. Tigrayan authorities welcomed the report. They've been battling federal forces, which are allied with Eritrean troops, since 2020. The conflict has old roots. For more than two decades, politics in Ethiopia were dominated by Tigrayans, a group which makes up only around 7% of the country's population. But this started to change when Prime Minister Abiy Ahmed came to power in 2018. Tigray resisted these changes, and in November 2020, the political crisis erupted into war. Thousands of people have died, and many more have been forced to flee their homes and are facing a humanitarian crisis. In March, the Ethiopian government declared a unilateral truce on humanitarian grounds, but combat resumed last month. As a final question, how did the thawing of relations between Ethiopia and Eritrea in recent years influence the outbreak of war in Tigray? And what role has the Eritrean army played in the fighting? Yes, well, really, one of the turning points was when Meles Zanawi, the great sort of enlightened, super intelligent prime minister of Ethiopia, died very young 
he was only 57 in 2012 of leukemia. And it removed a key actor from the game. His successor didn't hang around very long. And what you see is you see a waning of influence of the TPLF, which had always been the dominant player in the EPRDF coalition running Ethiopia. So the TPLF is on the back foot. It's lost its charismatic leader. It's been in power too long in most people's judgment. It's increasingly unpopular across Ethiopia. Its ethnic federal ideas is being challenged and is seen by many as a sham. So uh, Abiy Ahmed takes over as prime minister. He's from the Oromo community, a community that has particular issues with the TPLF and with uh, with the way in which uh, Ethiopia is being run at that stage. Abiy Ahmed is a is a former intelligence officer. He's young. He's a Pentecostalist. He's charismatic. And he's talking the talk of political reform and also sort of saying ethnic federalism hasn't worked for us as a country and let's we need to unite as a nation. And he seemed to do a lot of incredibly important things because at that stage, Ethiopia was in a state of all, a state of almost permanent a state of emergency. And there were sort of endless curfews and thousands of people had been rounded up and jailed. So he opened the prison. He released thousands of political prisoners. He exposed the track record of torture that had been uh, practiced in detention centers under the TPLF and the EPRDF. He welcomed home all these exiled dissidents who were you know, campaigning against the TPLF. Uh, and he also prosecuted high-ranking TPLF insiders who had become pretty uh, corrupt by that stage. Uh, and most significantly, um, Abiy Ahmed reaches out to President Isaias and says, OK, we're going to deal with this border issue. You're, you know, we're going to demarcate you. You can have bad May. Um, we want to sort of start, you know, it's ridiculous, this kind of no war, no peace situation. We must cooperate. Uh, there was a very important summit where the two men met in Asmara and I, President Isaias was invited to Addis uh, um, it was the first time in two decades that there had been a summit between these two leaderships. Uh, they re-established diplomatic relations. And it, it was thanks to all of that that overture that um, Abiy Ahmed was allotted the Nobel Peace Prize in 2019, which looks like, you know, given how much war he has overseen since then, looks like a an extremely ironic <laughs> prize now. And there's certainly been cause for it to be rescinded. But um after the summit, um, the TPLF is increasingly, what remains of TPLF is increasingly at odds with Abiy. Uh, the hardliners within that movement who've been sacked, disgraced, humiliated in public, they, they retire to Tigray, to the north. He starts working on centralising his prosperity party. Then there's a, a spat over the staging the elections because Abiy says, we've, you know, we're hit by COVID, we can't stage elections. And Tigre, the TPLF and Tigre say, well, we can, we'll stage elections and they go ahead. So that's already, you know, a very autonomous uh, gesture. And then uh, in November 2020, as relations between TPLF and central, the central executive power in Addis are getting worse and worse, the TPLF attack the Northern Command uh, in Tigre and there are mass arrests and also, um, you know, plenty of Ethiopian commanders are killed in that those attacks. And the Tigrayans say, you know, you were preparing to, you were bolstering this 
this Northern Command because you're planning to attack us. We've just done a preemptive strike. Whereas in Addis, it's seen as a stab in the back. You know, you invited people to a dinner party and then you slaughtered them. And that marks the beginning of the Tigray War, which Abiy has always been reluctant to call a war. He calls it a law enforcement operation. He's a bit like Putin in that respect. And in that war, Eritrea's involvement has been pivotal because Abiy has also been facing challenge down south from the Oromo uh, Liberation Army. So his army is stretched. But in Tigray, the Eritreans have been there to give him a helping hand and sending, you know, uh, their troops, but also Ethiopian troops have gone in via Eritrea and attacking the TPLF. So the TPLF found itself uh, the subject of a pincer movement. And I think a lot of people, myself included, assumed at the start that the TPLF would be defeated extremely quickly. In fact, it turned out that they, they staged an extraordinary military campaign at the beginning. And they, after having sort of lost territory, they regained it. They knew the terrain. They had this track record of military efficiency. They knew the, their region, whereas the Ethiopians were sending people who didn't know the terrain and just sort of relying on sheer manpower uh, and, and was, was seeing a lot of people killed. But eventually um, the, the war did turn. There was a point where the um, TPLF looked like it might even, you know, start advancing on Addis and Abiy ended up ordering a uh, mass mobilization. But eventually the war, the tide of the war did turn, probably because the uh, Ethiopian army started using drones that it had bought abroad and they, they seem to have made all, all the difference. So, you know, we've just had a peace agreement. I think what's one of the most shocking things for people like me who've been watching this this war from afar is the sort of the behaviour of the Eritrean army in Tigray because um, Isaiah Safawaki has repeatedly used the phrase game over when talking to and about the TPLF. And the impression he has given is that he wants to crush the TPLF totally eradicate it from the landscape. And if that involves killing, you know, thousands and thousands of of Tigrayans, that's really, it doesn't bother him in the slightest. So what you've seen is the Eritrean army. There have been atrocities on all sides. Everyone agrees on that. But you have seen the Eritreans have been accused of taking part in massacres, of gang rape, you know, rape as an instrument of war, of systematic pillaging, of the looting of hospitals, the 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 burning of crops so that Tigrayan farmers won't be able to feed Tigrayan Tigray is a country that is always hungry, always in need of famine relief. So there's been this sort of raised earth approach. And this is very, very shocking to someone, you know, like me who knows from history that the EPLF was famous and prided itself on the way it treated um civilians and also the way it treated prisoners of war. And instead, you're seeing this sort of appalling behavior. And and the impression that it gives is that these youngsters who spent years drilling in Sawa were just sort of let off the leash. They've been brainwashed into this hatred of Tigrayans who are, you know, the, the seen as the traditional enemies, despite the fact that so many of them, you know, are distantly related to Eritreans, that they've got the same religion, they, they've got the same cultural references, the same history. And that they've just been let off the leash by their commanders and told, you know, do what, do as you will. And that that's been very uh, depressing uh, and shocking. But as I said, we've we've now had this peace deal signed in Pretoria. 
this month. Um, one of the, the problems with that peace deal is it doesn't seem to include any reference to Eritrea and Eritrean forces on the ground in Tigray. Um, so until that issue is addressed, you know, we have we don't know if Eritrea is going to be withdrawing or, or staying put. It's been a very, very costly war. Uh, we know that people have starved inside Tigray. We don't know in what numbers because the press hasn't been given access to that a- area. But um, Ethiopia was um, using humanitarian aid and, and food aid, cutting it off as a way of bringing that province to its knees. So I think that we may never know quite how many people have died in that uh, in Tigray during this war. I think Abiy, you know, the Ethiopian prime minister emerges as a victor, but I think he's also been morally diminished by what what has taken place in the last few years in Tigray. Um, And he's definitely seen his international reputation trashed. And more and more, looking at Isaiah Safawerki, the president of Eritrea, you have to sort of say that he has played the long game. He was someone who, from what I understand, always thought that Eritrea should be the dominant player in the Horn of Africa, despite its its tiny size, uh, that it should be the, the, the dominant hegemonic player. Uh, and it seems that, you know, he's had his way because Eritrea emerges from this war as the sort of the kingmaker, you know, the tail that's wagging this enormous dog that is Ethiopia. And, you know, Eritrea is this tiny little country which seems to really be able to make or break power in Ethiopia. So, you know, back in 2000, at the end of the Badme War, when Eritrea was being treated as a pariah state, I don't think anyone imagined that it would emerge as such a key player in the Horn of Africa. So it's a a very good, if very sad example of that old proverb, revenge is a dish best served cold, because it seems to me that's what Isaias has been uh, doing in, uh, in the Horn of Africa over the last few years. Many thanks to Michaela Rong for that account of Eritrea's modern history. If you want to know more about Eritrea, her book I Didn't Do It For You is available now.